Uh, we've uh, finally finished our, our six-month study uh, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. I want to thank Lois uh, two weeks ago, Jomo last week when I was gone for wrapping that up for us and doing that so well. I want to encourage you to uh, not leave all of that six months of uh, study, preaching, learning, discussion, leave all of that behind, but rather very specifically today and a couple of times over the coming week to take 10 minutes, to carve out 10 minutes and read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel, just about 10 minutes to uh, allow that to percolate and to uh, bring to mind and memory and thought the things that we talked about, hopefully some of the things that we talked about over the last six months. Uh, we don't want to leave those things behind, check them off, done, but uh, our hope is that they continue to percolate in our souls and our spirits and our minds and our lives, transforming uh, the way we see the world, our worldviews, our relationships, our values, our decisions, our very lives, our hearts, our minds. That's what God intends. Uh, as Stephen said, God's word uh, does not leave us void, but impacts, changes, has the power to transform. Uh, Jesus said to uh, his disciples, uh, where will you go? To whom else will you go? And Peter says, who else can we go to? You alone, you alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And I really believe that the Sermon on the Mount that we spend so much time in has power to change with God's grace and in God's grace uh, the parts of us that desperately need changing, reformation, uh, redemption. So I want to encourage you in that way. I'd also say uh, that if you do, if you have, if God has spoken to you through the Sermon on the Mount, through that reading, through the study, through the conversation, through the prayer and percolation, I'd love to hear about it. So grab me after worship or uh, stop by the office or give me a call or write me an email, me or any of our elders. We really would like to hear about what God is saying to you. This is not just a monologue on Sunday mornings, but what God is saying to you and what God is doing, hopefully, in each of our lives. That's the intention of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just to be put on the wall or read, put in a book, closed, and put on a shelf, but it's about what God is doing through his will and his word and his way in our lives. Uh, and, now, uh, and now moving on. Palm Sunday today is, other than Easter, it's my favorite. It is absolutely my favorite uh, Sunday of the year. And sometimes it's hard for me to exactly put my finger on why. Uh, part of it is the kids. Part of it is the explicit and outward, visible, physical, and tangible worship with palm branches. Um, but there's something going on about Palm Sunday that always hits me hard. The passage uh, we're going to read this morning, uh, a part of the Palm Sunday known as Jesus' triumphal entry, is so important that all four gospel writers tell about it. And there aren't many passages, there aren't a lot of passages that all four gospels, gospel writers include, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this is one of them in various and slight variations of ways they do. And because we've spent uh, so much of our time, almost all of our time over the last seven months in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to read it from Matthew's Gospel this morning, but before we do that, let's pray together. God, we ask that you would help uh, bend us toward you, incline us toward you. Give us a quiet space in our minds that uh, we might hear your voice. Give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that are good to see, hearts that are fertile and receptive soil to the seeds of your word. 
I pray and ask that as my words are true to and consistent with your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent with your word in any way, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up the story in the gospel six days before Passover, which was and is one of Israel's or the people of Israel's biggest three feasts or celebrations over the course of a year. Most of Jesus' public ministry has happened in the northern region of Israel, then known as Galilee. But Jesus, uh, a number of weeks ago maybe, and we kind of marked that by Ash Wednesday, turns his face toward Jerusalem and heads south up geographically toward Jerusalem, towards sort of the, the center of all the, Christ, the Jewish faith. He turns his face towards Jerusalem. He makes his, uh, in airline nomenclature, his final approach. Beginning to read it, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Listen closely, this is God's word. As they, and the they here is Jesus and his closest 12 or so disciples, and maybe also the two men that he has just healed of blindness in the immediately preceding passage, and maybe some others. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which means house of figs, little town. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, from which one can literally see Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives and then this deep valley and then Jerusalem on a hill. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. He always sends out in two, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he, in other words, the owner of the female donkey and its colt or its male offspring colt, will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, in other words, the people of Israel, in Israel, in particular Jerusalem, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed there the disciples' cloaks, outer garments, on them on the donkey and its coat, colt, or its foal, for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed all shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna means save, or save us, or save please. And Hosanna is etymologically connected to Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua, or Joshua, in its more Greek form, which means literally, he saves. So it's all coming together there. We don't hear it in English, but it's there. And Hosanna here could be understood as this prayer but it also very much could be this exclamation of praise in this context. And from Psalm 118, blessed is he, or God, you please bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, a word Lord used in the Old Testament regularly to refer to God himself, but which has already been used numerous times in Matthew's gospel to refer specifically to Jesus. 
The exclamation in Matthew's gospel from Psalm 110 is a celebration of the one who brings the divine name and the divine presence to Israel, and now specifically to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. God save, Hosanna in the highest. This is a prayer for God's highest resources of salvation. It's an appeal to God to pull out all the stops to save from sources that are the deepest, as we say in English, or the highest, as they say in Hebrew. God save in the very best way with all that you've got in the biggest and best and most important and powerful way. Save. And Jesus never refers to him as son of David, but others do. And all of this was not just whatever words, but subtle and very specific affirmations by the crowd and by Matthew as he writes of who Jesus was in all of his fullness in lots of different ways. Hosanna to the son of David. The Jewish people's expectation that Messiah would be a descendant or a son of David, Israel's greatest king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. We read in verse 10. And asked, who is this? The whole city is stirred. And I'll come back to this word later, but it's the same word that in other places in Matthew's gospel is translated quaked as in earth. It's the uh, Greek word seismo, from which we get seismology. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Stirred just seems like something you do with batter when you're making a cake. This is more than that. Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus was a common name, and so there was reason to specify. This is Jesus who is a prophet, which doesn't mean that he wasn't also Messiah and King and Son of God. Those terms were not mutually exclusive. He was all of them. And just to be crystal clear, this, this Jesus grew up in the small, off-the-beaten-path town of Nazareth. And because lots of people hadn't heard of Nazareth, we'll just be real clear. It's Nazareth in Galilee. That's where it was. That's who he was. That's where he came from. It's this Jesus. This is that Jesus. Six chapters later in Matthew 27, Jesus would be crucified. And above his head, the Roman soldiers placed the written charge against him. We read in chapters 27, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And while they did that in mockery, there was so much unaccidental truth in that. That was his crucifixion. This now, back in chapter 21, Jesus entered entrance into Jerusalem was his coronation. That later on is his crucifixion. This is his coronation. And scholars debate how big of a deal this actually was, how much fanfare there really was around Jesus' so-called, what we call today and in history, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. After all, there were lots of people, pilgrims heading into uh, and arriving in Jerusalem at that time, faithful Jews from all over the region, all over Israel, all over Galilee, all over that region, all over the world in some ways. We're pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, packing it. And realistically, if Jesus had attracted a huge, huge crowd, in other words, enough to grab the attention of either the religious 
establishment or the Roman civil government and authorities, either one of those would have suppressed, squashed, silenced, crushed any fanfare around Jesus. They would have. The city would have already been moving in that direction, the direction of an overcrowded frenzy because of Passover. No one, not the religious authorities or the civil Roman authorities, needed someone or a crowd or the masses claiming that some man from Nazareth was a prophet, a messiah, or certainly not king, a.k.a. Caesar, or a threat to one of the Herods. They would have shut him down if it was a huge thing. Jesus' actual entry in Jerusalem six days before Passover may have been more of what might be called an enacted parable. An enacted parable. And on a smaller scale among a limited group of people, maybe sort of in a quiet part of Jerusalem or just a a place that didn't get quite as much attention on a smaller scale. Regardless, the words that the crowd shout and the actions of Jesus' followers and many people around them in Jerusalem were clear. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. Here comes a king. So there wasn't a red carpet. But there was something very familiar. The people laid branches, or very similar, the people laid branches from the fields on the road in front of Jesus. And either other pilgrims to Jerusalem or residents of Jerusalem also took off their outer garments. Imagine you're, you've got one, maybe two cloaks. They're taking them off. They're laying them down in the dirt, the dirty streets, for a donkey. And it's younger donkey, baby donkey, child donkey, son donkey to walk over them, to tread on them. Something's going on. Somebody knows something. And all of this contrasts sharply with how a conquering general or a victorious king in that day or a recently crowned king would enter a city. In the minds of many, there was Alexander the Great going back in their minds, entering the city on his huge stallion, Bucephalus, exuding size and strength and power. That was it in their minds when a king or an emperor or a general having come from battle, coming to conquer, enters the city. It's the biggest horse that you can find, connoting, exuding, projecting power, strength. I don't know, have you ever been up close to one of the Clydesdales? Anyone, sort of Budweiser used to do those tours periodically. Anyone been close to a They're massive animals, just bulging with muscles, exuding strength. Those are the kind of horses, horses that kings and generals would ordinarily enter a city on, riding uh, royally. And Jesus rode in on a donkey and really the foal of a donkey. In other words, an adolescent donkey at that. Do we have any Shrek fans here this morning? I know the children have laughed. Come on, let's be honest. Any other Shrek fans this morning? A few, willing to admit it. One of the main characters in the Shrek movies was Donkey, who doesn't even have a name. Do you remember that? Through the whole the series, he never has, his name is Donkey. That's all he is. He doesn't get a name. Even though he's a leading character, donkeys get no respect. My family and I were driving up I-5 through Los Angeles 
this past week, and uh, I'm driving really well in the middle lane, speed limit, and passing us on the left was this Rolls Royce. I was really impressed. Like it was a big, and it looked like a new sort of model of a Rolls Royce. I'm like, wow, that was a RR, wow, that's a Rolls Royce. We're in Hollywood. We're in Los Angeles. This is wow. And then I'm like, kind of the wheels start turning. I'm like, I, I wonder who's in the Rolls Royce. So I like press on the gas a little bit and sort of catch up and kind of look over. And I'm curious, sort of, and the back window's super tinted. So, uh, so I at least I go up to the front window and look over and just, I don't know, you know, is it a little kid? What's going on? And it's the dude. He's got the chauffeur's hat and all the, you know, you look black coat and really cool. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is, this is, um, and but can't tell who's in the back, but thought it must be someone really wealthy or someone very important or maybe even someone regal. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, not in a Rolls Royce, but in a Chevrolet or a Toyota, probably had maybe a dent in the side, a little rust, which was neither accidental nor insignificant. No doubt Jesus was a king, but he was and he would be a different kind of king. And certainly different than the Roman governors and the Jewish puppet kings, the Herods. Jesus could have entered Jerusalem on a war horse. But he didn't come to make war, he came to make peace. In the words of the prophet Zechariah, which Matthew quotes in verse 5 as commentary, and which prior to Jesus' arrival may have simply been overlooked or ignored scripture because such words would have been so to them and in their world strange. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Gentle, a king, Hard to comprehend in that day and age, and yet that is how Jesus described himself and his way with us and his disposition toward us back in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, if you remember those verses, 28, 29, 30. And this in a day when kings were typically harsh and ruthless and brutal, intimidating their subjects into subservience through fear and intimidation and threats and violence. That was normative for kings of that day, but not so with Jesus. It's true that many Jews, uh, Jewish people of the day were looking, hoping, watching that God would rescue them Again, from living under the thumb of the Romans as they had as centuries before, living in slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt, and they were looking for an anointed leader who would be this person, even a king, as some of the kings in their history had led them to victories and led them out of oppression, as Moses had led them out of slavery. They were looking for another king. It had been a long time since they'd had their own king. They were looking for a king in the name of, or in the line of David. But they were not looking for or expecting the king like Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, the unexpected, expected king, who traveled, taught, healed, cast out demons, whose palace, so to speak, 
was roads and hillsides, occasionally synagogues, and occasionally the homes of tax collectors and sinners. Who never really had a home of his own, as far as we know. Who invited people to come and follow him and to die to themselves and to find a new and better kind of life in and through him. What are you and I going to do with this king? How will we respond to him? How are we responding to him? He, his existence, requires some sort of response. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that by simply celebrating Palm Sunday alone, we are any better than anyone else or more faithfully inclined to the king from Nazareth by simply celebrating Palm Sunday. Too many of us and too much of the church and modern Christianity have understood Jesus more as a consultant than a king, more a personal assistant than royalty. We've treated Jesus as an add-on to our lives rather than the center. We've treated Jesus as an app that we can download or upload whenever we want, whenever it's convenient. A friend when it's convenient or expedient for us or when we need something or when somebody or someone is looking. But the thrust of the verses before us this morning is that Jesus really was and is king with a capital K. He's king of Israel. He's king of Jerusalem. He's king of the world. And he's the king who wants to reign in your heart and in mine. In your life and in mine. And what might that look like? Several things I would glean from this passage. First, those people for whom Jesus was king acknowledged and professed and declared who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was, son of David, Lord, prophet, and in other places, son of God and Messiah. They knew who Jesus was. They acknowledged and professed this. They acknowledged and professed this. Second, they worshiped Jesus. Their words in verse nine, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, they can be words of prayer, but they are also certainly words of praise and worship and homage. They worship Jesus and worship doesn't have to be in a sanctuary or on Sunday mornings. In fact, it shouldn't. It should never be limited to that. Remember, Matthew is the gospel writer with whom, for whom, in his book, where people are always worshiping, it begins with worship with the Magi, ends with worship. In the last chapter, the women running from the empty tomb encounter Jesus and they fall down, they clasp his feet and worship him. The very last few verses of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' disciples encounter him up on a mountain in Galilee where he told them to go and their response was to worship him. Midway through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus' disciples are out in a boat they come to see and understand in a new and fresh way who he was, his identity. And Matthew tells us, and there they worshiped him on a boat, on a mountain, on a road, in his parents' house when he's a little, little boy. Those people for whom Jesus was king worshiped them. And then third, they did so publicly out in the streets of crowded Jerusalem without embarrassment, without fear, and without reservation. Without embarrassment, without fear, without reservation. Fourth, they did so exuberant, exuberantly and with their whole selves, with their coats. How else are we going to We'll go get some sticks. Over in John's gospel, they found palm branches and waved them 
I love the kids doing that every year, but it wasn't the children who don't get mentioned until the next few verses after this. It's the grown-ups. Raise your hands with me if you don't have a palm branch. It's the grown-ups, the adults in the room, who are worshiping Jesus. They do so exuberantly, with excitement and engagement, just as we do at sports games. I remember the image of the coach of San Diego State yesterday. Anyone remember that image? And finally, they did so in trust. They did so trusting Jesus, and they trusted Jesus because he had been with them gently. He was gentle toward them. They did not tremble in fear in his presence, but rather they could trust him. They did trust him because he was gentle with them and toward them. He handled with care. Who is the king of your life? Who has royal status in your life? Who is on the throne of your life? Who makes decisions? Who is highly honored? Who is even worshiped? Who is revered? Again, it's just Palm Sunday. It's the kids. The funny thing is we've kind of turned over Palm Sunday to the children, which is beautiful. I love it. But Palm Sunday is just really, really for adults, primarily. And kids. There's an interesting thing that happens in Matthew's gospel. He's born, and this Greek word that means to shake happens at his birth. And then it happens again when he's crucified. And then it happens again when he's resurrected. It shows up four times in Matthew's gospel. And this is the fourth time. This is the fourth time at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, his inauguration. It's earth shaking, earth shattering. It's really big. It's really important. The world now sees without a doubt who Jesus is, maybe even though it was on a small scale there. In Matthew's declaration, this is big. This is who he is, fully revealed finally. He is the king. This is his coronation, this is his inauguration. I know at least one or two of you in the room have been to Washington, D.C. for the grand inauguration that happens every four years, sometimes more often, in our country. And what a big, grand, almost royal, we don't have kings, but regal event that is, with all kinds of pomp and circumstance and that huge parade, horses and motorcycles and limousines and Secret Service SUVs and all that stuff going down Pennsylvania Avenue, that parade. And as big and grand and beautiful and royal as that is, this is actually bigger. On the cosmic scale, on the world stage, in human history, what's happening here is so big that the earth shook. The earth shook. This is Jesus' inauguration. When they put a crown on him, though, it will be a crown of thorns because he's a different kind of king. He's not what everyone expected. He didn't come to make war, he came to make peace. He didn't come to hate, he came to love. He didn't come to break people apart, but to reconcile people to God. 
He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He's a different kind of king than the world has ever known and will ever know. And he calls us uh, into a parade of worship around him, before him, behind him, and for him. How will we respond? Let's pray. God, help us to be, at least for a while and maybe forever, in the place, in the shoes of those who were with you that day. In exuberance, in wonder, in amazement, in joy, in delight, in anticipation, in excitement, in relief, Though they may not have known everything, they worshiped you, they honored you, they praised you. We don't know everything. We have questions and sometimes doubts. Nevertheless, may we be inclined toward you in worship and in praise, bringing honor to you and to your name. No one else is worthy. You alone are. So we offer ourselves to you Fill us with your spirit, open our eyes, bring joy to your people. May your kingdom come. O oh, great king, amen.